you're joining us through Facebook Live or podcast, YouTube, we welcome you to our Bible study hour where we're looking through Hebrews and just been blessed so far. Um, it's a tremendous blessing. It, it just seems like it's is a well that just keeps on going and um, we're going to see that as soon as we get into chapter three as well, where uh, one verse may be the whole night. Uh, hopefully we get verses one through six, but the name of the study we want to look at tonight is the faithful son is greater than the servant Moses. If you found your place, Hebrews chapter three, verse one, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, insomuch as he hath, or as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, tonight for your blessings upon your word as we stop and pause and assemble in your name and lift up our hearts, and Father, in just admiration and, and thankfulness, Lord, of your great grace, which you saved us. Father, show us tonight from your word and grow us in your word and our understanding that we may know more about Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is, again, um, I love the Word of God. I know that you, you all do too. And this is a great place to just to plunge in. In verse 1, we're actually going to look immediately at this because he starts talking about this wherefore. So I don't really need a recap because he's recapping for us in these first few words. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, and then comma. So that is an address. He doesn't really give us something to do until he says the word consider. So this address which he's giving, we have seen so far in the back uh, when he talks about holy brethren. This holy brethren is he's referring to us as the sanctified. Now remember in chapter 2, look back at chapter 2, verse 11. He says, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And we see that he is addressing us now, wherefore, having said all the things that we have said in the previous chapters, this wherefore it is given that we have a merciful and high uh, priest in verse 17. When I say verse 17, I mean chapter 2. Uh, so he says, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that we might be that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things 
pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So given that we have a merciful and faithful high priest, given our remarkable identity, which is in Jesus. Now, if you remember, what we've been building up to is this remarkable identity which we have in Jesus. I mean, it starts really in verse 9 and goes all the way to verse 18, that he has brought us from where we were, and he is the captain of our salvation, in verse 10, that through his sufferings, and then in verse 11, we saw that he even sanctified us. In chapter in Romans chapter 8, verse 10, it says, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. He calls us holy brethren because of Jesus Christ's righteousness. Now, last time we kind of the, warm us up this uh, tonight. If you remember when he sanctified us, he did the action upon us, didn't he? Just like when he brought us to salvation in verse 10, Jesus has done the action upon us. Sanctification is separating unto himself for a purpose. The same word is holy. He has made us holy. He has separated us. He sanctified us. And how has he sanctified us? How, I mean, we don't feel holy. How has he made us holy? How has he made us accepted and the beloved? Well, he has made us holy in the eyes of God because of his righteousness. So I stand before God in Jesus Christ's righteousness. The, the, if you think about the garment which he gave us to wear, uh, the wedding garment of his righteousness. So he has brought us to himself. He has reconciled us where we were separated from God. He has brought us to God through his own holiness, through his righteousness, so therefore, I'm not only accepted in the beloved, now we're still talking about who we are. Who are you? Well, he says at the end of verse 11, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. So we have a fellowship with Jesus Christ. So, and he goes on to talk about this fellowship. We are children in verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given to me. So not only are we brethren, but we're children. And then verse 14, notice he says partakers. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil. Now look back down at chapter 3. So after he calls us holy brethren, understanding we've been separated and sanctified, he calls us partakers. He says we are partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, last week we saw that word partakers up in verse 14. That first word is not talk that word is not the same word as what Jesus did. That first word, it means it was our nature. All of us have that in common. We're flesh and blood. Jesus does not have that in common with us. So he partook. And that word took part in verse 14 is the same word down here in chapter 3, verse 1, when he says partakers, and that is medeco. In the Greek, it means to take part of something that's not naturally yours. And so Jesus took part of the flesh. He partook of our flesh, something that was not naturally his, 
and he became the last Adam. He perfectly obeyed all of the command of God and the will of the Father, and he fulfilled the design of mankind, which we could not do, which Adam could not do. So he took part of that flesh, but then he suffered. He suffered in our place. He became our substitute, and he became our surety. He suffered, and he tasted death. And one of the things that we really need to understand going forward is the grace of God that has brought Jesus down to do that, to suffer. To, that he says that he made himself a little lower than the angels in verse 9. We see the humility of Jesus Christ in the fact not only did he take on the flesh, he was made a little lower than the angels. He In rank, he was brought down lower than the angels for the suffering of death so that he should taste death. So that he should taste it. And then for, in verse 14, why did he do this? Well, it says that he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. If it weren't for Christ, we'd all be defeated. I mean, we'd have no hope. We'd all be in hopelessness. In verse 15, it goes on to talk about the charge which Jesus led as our pioneer. And he delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So we are partakers. He partook of our nature so that we could partake of his. That is the only way that we could partake of. And that's what Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says, is that we might be partakers of the divine nature. So, we're moving kind of right along here in verse 1. We saw the wherefore, having said everything we needed to say, everything he had said. The address, who are we? We're sanctified. We're holy. We've been set apart. We've been acted upon by the grace of God. That he has saved us. That he became your substitute. That he may save you. That he may taste death for you. And not just the death, but every kind of death. Uh, the suffering, which in the sin, the, well, he didn't taste sin. He didn't sin, but the, the suffering which is caused from sin, he tasted. And then he even tasted that second death, which, aren't you glad that he tasted that? Aren't you glad he suffered for that and he paid for that where you do not have to suffer the second death that is talking about in Revelation. So he did all of that. And then not only, and now we're partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, I want to talk about the heavenly calling. The calling here is an internal special call of grace to the enjoyment and the blessings of grace. In verse 9, uh, I wanted us to see that it was by the grace of God. At the end of verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9, it's by the grace of God which all of this happened. It is by God's grace that we are saved. It's by His goodness. Now, we also see that it's the heavenly calling. That calling means that God called you. If God did not call you, you would not come. 
And the fact is, is that God must call. No one comes to God without God calling them to himself. That's the call of God. Now, this calling, we, we can go back through, this calling's been all throughout. Now, if we say this heavenly calling is God's call to us, well, then you can say, well, that's by God's grace. Well, look throughout all here in chapter 2 that led us up to this point and look and see all of this was by God's grace. The, the fact that we were being brought in verse 10, the, in bringing many sons into glory, God has done that by his grace and he's called us unto salvation to be brought. We are one of those who were brought and then we also see that in verse 11, sanctified, that's by God's grace. It's God's unmerited favor that we did not earn any of what God has done, that he has given this to us, and by his grace he has sanctified us by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In verse 12, it's by God's grace, it's his call that we're children and that we're brethren. I mean, what an amazing blessing to be, uh, for Jesus not to be ashamed to be called our brother. And that's by God's grace. That's not because I earned it. That's nothing good in me. That's by the goodness of God. Just blessing upon blessing. Just when you think it, it, it couldn't get better, it gets better. Because by his grace, his grace is worth praising. And so we see that not only are we children and brethren, but look what else he's done. By his grace, he's delivered us from death. By partaking the flesh and taking on, and he has blazed the trail, and he is leading us all the way through it. And that's what the, the captain of our salvation is talking about. He's blazed the trail. So he's delivered us. He's not only delivered us from the sting of death, or, oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? But he has delivered us from it to where we can meet it. I and mean, the, the fear of it, it is, does not have to rule your life. That Jesus has delivered us. And he's reconciled us in verse 17. He's delivered us in verse 15. He's reconciled us in verse 17 by his grace. And in verse 18, he helps us. He helps us. He's a secure. That means a help. Having gone through and being tempted himself in the flesh, he's able to sympathize with us. And so we see that this is our calling. We're holy brethren and we're partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, there's also within here, and if we look closely, there's also this heavenly. Now, he had been talking up to this point about, you know, the, the law, how the angels, uh, how Jesus is greater than the angels, and how man had squandered uh, his glory and his purpose. But there is a comparison here. In, in chapter 3, when he's talking about our heavenly calling. This word heavenly is used many times throughout the, the scripture, and it is always attached to spiritual versus earthly. Okay? So we have spiritual 
promises. We have a spiritual calling. We have a spiritual house. We, we have spiritual blessings. There's spiritual, and then there's earthly. Then there's physical. He's making the distinction here that we are partakers of the heavenly, the sphere of heaven, the sphere of the spiritual. Now, God, now there's, I want to say this the right way, there's a type and anti-type, okay? So uh, an anti-type, so a type is the things that you see in the, the Old Testament that are types of Christ and types of things to come. You've all heard that. The anti-type is what that type is based on. So Jesus would be the anti-type, right, of the things in the Old Testament concerning him that were types of him. Uh, the tabernacle, it was types of the heavenly uh, tabernacle. The Jerusalem, the type of the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, we see that God's people are called, the heavenly called, and those who keep believing, and that's what uh, he kind of goes on to say, uh, splits my page here, but he says, cons uh, the heavenly, partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, the type here is that God's people are spiritual. They're spiritual, we're called spiritual Israel, right? All throughout Romans, if you remember Romans, not all Israel was Israel. Who was the real children of God? Who were the real people of God? They're the ones who are spiritual. And that's what the heavenly here is. There's a distinction coming right here in chapter three, that the type was Israel. And the anti-type was spiritual Israel. What did God do? God called them out physically, didn't he? He elected Israel as a nation. He called them and to, to bring to himself for a peculiar people. He did that physically on earth. But what's that a type of? The heavenly calling, which he's done of us. Those who are spiritual. He has called us. He's elected us unto salvation. Who are the children of God, according to Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11? The people of God are the spiritual Israel. The people of God are those who believe. And we're going to see this here in a minute because he's going to talk about the provocation in the wilderness, how God was displeased with Israel, not all of Israel. Who was he displeased with? Those who were in unbelief. So, the heavenly calling, we need to understand, is the spiritual calling of God. It, and that's why he's making the distinction here. He is, remember, he's writing to the physical Jew. He's writing to those in Jerusalem. And he's making this, this call, this holy brethren are the ones who have partook of the heavenly calling. This isn't just being born a Jew, and then you are a partaker of heaven. You're a partaker of this, this children of God. So, who are the children of God? We desire a heavenly country. And you don't have to turn there. In chapter 11, verse 16, it says, But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. It's not an earthly country we look for. It's not a physically land that we're looking for. We are desiring the better country. That's who God's people 
are. It's always been. We've always looked towards that country. We've always looked towards him. So it's not a physical country we're looking for. And also, it's not a physical Jerusalem we're looking for. It's a heavenly Jerusalem that we are looking for. That's what we desire. Um, now, in chapter 12, verse 22, it talks about that. But ye are coming to Mount Zion. Now, when it talks about Mount Zion, that's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. That's talking about heaven. It's talking about glory. And unto the city of the living God. That's where God lives. The heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels. Immediately, he is setting up the superiority of the spiritual to the physical right here. There, You have the types and you have the anatypes. You have the types that the Old Testament were pointing towards, and then you have the fulfillment of that type. And it's in the spiritual that we're looking for. Now, Judaism was an earthly calling with an earthly inheritance. Christianity is a spiritual and heavenly calling with a spiritual and heavenly inheritance. Paul said our conversation or our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in Philippians 3.20. So over and over, Paul is asking the Jews, and the writer of the Hebrews is really bringing this out, why would you want to stick to the symbols and the types and the foreshadows that are here on earth and not embrace the heavenly realities that Jesus has made real? Why would you want to hold on to the types? Why would you want to hold on to the shadows? So remember, the one he's writing to are having these tendencies to want to go back into the law, they want to go back to Moses, or want to go back in, into this thing. But here it is, is in chapter 3, no, we have a heavenly calling. We are partakers. So it should be weighed that we are being brought to glory. This heavenly calling in verse 10 of chapter 2, look again with me. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory. That's our calling. That's our heavenly calling. Isn't that wonderful? To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It goes way beyond the things which we saw in the Old Testament. The things in the Old Testament were all pointing to Jesus, even Moses. Even Moses was looking to Jesus. And so that's what he's getting ready to talk about now. Now, he's done with who we are in verse 1. Now he's going to say consider. All right, here's the request. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. This consider in the Greek, it means to pay attention to or continually observe. So don't just consider Jesus and then just don't consider him anymore. Your mind stays on him. The idea is put your mind on Jesus and let it remain there that you may understand who Jesus is and what he wills. So we consider, we put our mind on Jesus, and that's the call, consider the apostle, consider that he has recovered 
man's lost destiny. Consider that he humbled himself and became our sin substitute. Consider all the things which he has done in chapter 1 and chapter 2, who he is. He's God's final word. He's the son. And once you consider all of these things on the basis of who Jesus is and what he has done, every person should consider Jesus. Every, I mean, just the, the thrust of what he has done. Uh, rather you're saved or not saved, we should always be considering him. And, you know, I got to thinking about that and how true is that, that things that pop up in our lives or even last night's result of the, the governor, the, the race for the governor. You know, you can get kind of swept up in thinking of those things and letting it become bitter to you or you become worried or you're just fed up and, and things or things in your life that can overcome you, whether it's fear or it's doubt or it's, it's anxiety. But consider... Jesus. Let's put our mind on Jesus. That's what the, the admonition is. Not just think about him, think always about him in the light of everything else. And you know he's on his throne. You know he's won the victory. And you know that one of these days we're going to shed these clothes and be for this bodies and be up with him in glory. All things are after the counsel of his will. And so when we stop and consider him, that's, that's the admonition, consider his office. Now he's getting ready to tell us why Jesus is better than Moses. Now, why is this necessary? So in verse two, he says, who was faithful to him that appointed him as also Moses was faithful in all his house. Now, Jesus is better than Moses, and he's going to talk about in these three ways. Jesus is better in his office. He is the apostle and the high priest. He is better in his work. He is the builder of the house, and he is better in his person. Jesus is the son. Moses was a servant. And one of the things we need to look at is why he's bringing up Moses. Now, I think we've got a, bit, a little bit of time. I, most of us know Moses. I'm, I'm assuming maybe just for the people who are listening may not know the greatness of Moses. Moses was to the Jews, I mean, some of them even thought he was better than the angels. To the Jews, Moses was up there with Abraham and the patriarchs, and the forefathers. And the law to them, their identity was synonymous with Moses. So many times that they would say, instead of the law or, or the, the Ten Commandments, they would say the law of Moses. Many times we see that. Now we know God greatly used Moses. I mean, just providentially, we see an amazing story for Moses, even from a baby, how God preserved him uh, from being killed by Pharaoh and then raised in Egypt for 40 years and then uh, cast out and he went and he became a shepherd for 40 years and then God called Moses despite Moses and many times that, you know, it's just the, the, the whole a humble attitude 
Uh, Moses didn't think he was anybody special. But God, and he actually was a little bit like, God, are you sure you, you, sure you want me? Isn't there somebody better you can send to Israel? And by then, Israel was in bondage in Egypt. And they're the ones that built the, the pyramids in Egypt. So, but Moses, we see, was just an amazing servant that he was meek, so much so that um, God, if you, if you know your Bible, he would become very angry with those who murmured against Moses. And so we see that he used Moses greatly. Now think about this for a minute. The timeline of the Bible is 6,000 years, right? The earth, well, actually, it's uh, 4,000 years. The last 2,000 years, we don't have recorded in the Bible, right? We just have it up to Jesus Christ and a little bit after, maybe 100 years after Christ. But if you put, if you follow the chronology of the Bible, it puts creation or it puts the age of the earth about 6,000 years old. So it was 4,000 years from creation to Jesus. So we've had the last 2,023 years, right? So the Pentateuch, the books that Moses wrote, cover 3,000 years of that 4,000 years. All the way from creation to Moses is about 3,000 years. The, after Moses, you had you know, David and you had all them, and then the prophets, and then you had the exile, and you had the, pro, you know, all of that happened within just a 1,000 years. Just think, and God gave direct revelation to Moses. No other prophet received the kind of revelation that Moses did. And he was face to face. Actually, in uh, Numbers, you don't have to turn there. It's just amazing what God had. Uh, I think it's Numbers, yeah, chapter 12. He says, My servant Moses is not so. Who is faithful in all mine house? With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently. And not in dark speeches, in the similitude of the Lord shall he be whole. Wherefore then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So we see that uh, the greatness of Moses, but he's bringing up Moses to talk to them about how Jesus is better than Moses. Consider he is better in his office. He is called the apostle. Notice the capital A. He is the apostle and the high priest of our profession. The, the word apostle is the sent one, who one who is sent. Now, Moses could be considered an apostle. I mean, they didn't use the word apostle, but Moses was sent of God. But Moses was never a high priest. Moses was in the priest line, but he was not a high priest. Only Jesus is the supreme apostle. He is the one sent of God. And actually, what's interesting is John Gill uh, said this, I didn't know this, but the high priest among the Jews during the Day of Atonement uh, would be considered an apostle. He'd be called an apostle. Here was the saying that they had back then. 
uh, the Sanhedrin would say, Lord High Priest, we are the messengers of the Sanhedrin, and thou art our apostle, or a messenger, and the messenger of the Sanhedrin. So Jesus is both the apostle and the high priest. Uh, he had both offices. Now we're going to talk about him as the high priest a little bit more in chapter 4 and 5. But he says of our profession. Now that word profession, it is sometimes uh, translated to confession. There's not a lot of difference between confession and profession when it comes to the Greek. That's both basically the same kind of word. It really depends on how you're using it in context. But our profession, when it's speaking as a verb, it's something that you speak, that you speak out. And when it's used as a noun, which is used as a noun right here, it's who you are, your identity. It is who you have claimed to be. You are professing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and that's who I am. That's my identity. That's my makeup. And so I can ask, who are you? I'm a professed believer in Jesus Christ. And that is my, that's where you get profession. That is my entire makeup. Now, profession, when you do it verbally, that's a verb. And what that means is it is a positive action. You're saying this is something that I will do or that I am doing. Confession is different. Confession is something that you say is something that you did do. It's usually in the negative sense. That's something that you are asking the Lord to forgive you of, repent of that sin. It's something that you had done. Profession is something that you are doing or that you want to do. And then he says, consider, remember our word consider, think on him, have your mind set on him. He is our apostle. He has the office of the apostleship. He was sent of God, and he did the work of God and the will of God perfectly. There's been no other like Jesus, and he's our high priest. Now, the apostle, just like the prophet, their job was to represent God to man. That was the prophet's job. That was the apostle's job, is to represent God to man. The high priest's job was to represent man to God, to go the other way with it. Jesus has done both. <laughs> He's reconciled us. He has brought us to God and God to us. So in, he's just better in every way. In verse 2, it says, who was faithful to him that appointed him? He's talking about Jesus was faithful to God. And so he brings up the example of Moses, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. How many times do we see this over and over in the word of God that Moses is brought up? Um, so we see that he is superior also in works as he is the builder. That's what it says in verse 3. For this man, Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, insomuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. So he's bringing up just a, 
an example, an illustration, as, of course, the one who builds the house, architects it, and builds it, has more glory, has more honor, it become, gets more praise than the actual house itself. And then in verse 4, for every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And so, and Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant. Now, notice this. It says Moses was a faithful servant. And that is who Moses was. And you know what's amazing? Oh, where is it? I, I want to, uh, yes, I, I wanted to, to bring this up to you. Back again at, at Numbers 12, verse 7. When we talk about the faithfulness of Moses, we observe the faithfulness of Moses. But God called Moses his faithful servant in Numbers chapter 12, verse 7. He says, my servant Moses, who is faithful in all mine house. It's actually a reference uh, of Numbers 12. Moses was faithful. God called him faithful. How much? I mean, when, and that should convict us. And Lord, I want to be called faithful by God. Don't you? I want God to say, you've been faithful. And that's what he'll say. Thou well done, thy good and faithful servant. So we remain faithful to God as God had called Moses faithful. But just as Moses was faithful to God who appointed him, Jesus was even more so. Jesus always did the will of the Father. Now, this house, when it starts talking about the house, we understand the house to be the people of God. This is the spiritual house. For every house is built, now he's still on the, on verse 4, he's still on that illustration. But he that built all things is God. So then he goes on to talk about the spiritual house. Verse 5, and Moses verily was faithful, notice where? In all his house. Moses was a, was a, a man, just as we were. Moses had sinned just like we do. But he was faithful in all. He's among the house. He's with the, We're in the house. The people of God is the house of God. That's what it's talking about. He's talking about a physical house here. He's talking about a spiritual house. So Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But what is Christ? But Christ as a son, not in his house, over, over his own house. Isn't that something? That Jesus is the master builder. Christ is the one who built it. So not only do we see here in that Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Jesus is the builder. He is faithful over 
his house. He's, he is both the faithful and the builder. He's both the high priest and he's the sacrifice. He is both uh, those, he's the, and the maker. So not only is he the builder, but he's also the son. He's more than one thing at the time, at the same time. Now, if you write down, we don't have time to go into it, Ephesians chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 2, when Peter talks about us being lively stones or built up a spiritual house, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 says that uh, all the building fitly framed together is grown up into a holy temple in the Lord in whom Jesus, ye also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. We see that Moses was faithful, but he was a steward in the household of God where Jesus is the builder over his own house. And this, that household that Jesus is the builder over is his own people. If you're saved today, you're in the household of God. You're in the house. So to hold on to Judaism was to hold on to a symbol of the past, of the symbol, a type of what Jesus had brought. Moses did not build the household of God. He was a faithful servant of it. Now, in verse 5 and 6, it brings up to the climax how this servant that it talks about that Moses was, it's not the normal word for servant. It's actually a, a higher ranking servant. It's not used often in the New Testament. But Moses was caring. He was faithful. He was obedient. He was meek. Uh, he was humble. He was caring. He was a good steward of God. He was I mean, he has been celebrated in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We see Jesus refer to Moses. We see Stephen refer to Moses and Paul refer to Moses. When, when did you start making the Jews really mad? Well, if they thought that you were teaching against what Moses taught. So they highly regarded Moses. So if you notice, the writer of Hebrews is a little careful with introducing Moses as the comparator of Jesus because he's saying Moses was indeed faithful. But remember who Moses is. Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son. So if you're trying to flee from Christ and go back into the law, you're going back to the servant. You're going back to the to, the, uh, to, to Moses and the law and the types. And Jesus is the anti-type. So to really, the thrust of this, in verse 5, it's really big. Why was Moses faithful in all his house as a servant? For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. Not only was Moses faithful to God, but he also looked forward to the final and better work. He also looked forward to Jesus Christ. To accept Moses' word, to highly regard Moses in the Old Testament, to highly regard all of the things which we saw, also regard what Moses said. He said that God would raise up a prophet like unto himself, hear him. And this is Christ. Jesus even said in John 5, 46, For had ye believed Moses, ye would, all, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Oh, he looked forward to the better word, and he looked forward to the Son of God. 
But notice at the end of verse 6, and actually this is going to be the rest of chapter 3, because verse 7 starts a warning. In verse 6, as we read, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Do you notice that word, if? If we hold fast to confidence, it goes back to the chapter 2 warning of do not slip, do not drift from the word. If you profess in Jesus Christ, you endure. This is not saying that you are not in the household of God. Uh, and actually, there, there's a couple of ways. We don't have time to really dig deep into this if conditional statement here, but the meaning is simply that your continuance and perseverance of faith is proof that you actually are in the house. You actually are the people of God. You're one of the people of God. That you are the one that we saw in chapter 2 that Jesus has brought us to glory. He's bringing the sons into glory. He, You are the one that he sanctified, that he has brought to himself, and that he has established, and you are going to be just, you were justified. If you're born again, if you are in the household of God, you are in his spiritual house. You are, are complete in Jesus Christ. He has tasted death for you. All the benefits, all the the, just the blessings of being his. Now, the one who falls away, you never hear of again, you never see him, and, and they just go in what the world calls apostasy. The word of God does not teach that you can lose salvation because we don't have the power to lose salvation. We don't, we don't have the power to be saved. We didn't, I mean, from what we read, we see it's all God's power. Remember Sunday. Who, who receives the glory of the gospel? God receives the glory, the honor of the gospel, because it's God's gospel, it's God's work. But if you are someone who has fallen away, you've just proven to have never been in the household of God. Um, we see that warning many times. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Jesus says, If you continue in my words, you are my disciples indeed. Remember Romans chapter 16, verse 25, where we were Sunday who has the power to establish us according to the gospel? It's God. And that word established means strengthen. That means God has the power to keep us by his power. We are saved. We will endure. And that is the part in verse 6. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end, what that means is it's not a works-based position which we have. The works which we have are an evidence of the position which we're in, which God by his power has brought us to himself. Remember, we're partakers of the heavenly calling. 
It wasn't even my nature to be called of God. God was the one that had to do the calling. Because that partakers, I've taken upon the partake of the divine nature. And so, as we close, when we know that we are in Christ, we are persevering, we hear the Lord's voice. We know, just as John, in 1 John, there's no you know, doubt about our salvation. We have assurance of our salvation. We know that the love of God is in us. We feel convicted. We have the Holy Spirit within us convicting us. And we have no doubt that if today we were to die, we're going to go to glory. Because we have that promise. We have no doubt. Then consider the Son. Every day of your life, keep your mind upon Jesus. No matter what's happening, no matter if you're going for an MRI, an x-ray, whatever may happen, consider Jesus. Consider the author and the finisher of all things. Not just our faith, but all things. One day, everything that you see is going to be folded up like a garment. And he's going to change it. And we're going to have the inheritance that Jesus has. Because we are partakers. We are joint heirs with Christ. That is by the grace of God. Aren't you happy? God has just marvelously saved us and has established us. And we didn't get to look at Ephesians chapter 2, but he has set us up in heavenly places. He has quickened us and set us up in heavenly places. For by grace are you saved. We are his workmanship, created unto good works, Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this lesson. Lord, may it just penetrate our hearts, fill our hearts. Father, may we just, every day, Lord, as we come to you in repentance and faith, Father, may we just get our hope from the fact that we consider our Lord and Savior, how he has won the victory, how he has eliminated the death, Father, that we were all our lives in bondage and fear, but now no more. Father, we can look to you and in all hope and assurance and of our heart be glad. Pray for those who do not feel well tonight, Lord, who are in pain. Father, we ask, Lord, that you would just help them and heal them according to your will. We'll give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.